Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations, a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real-world experiences in the industry, what they've learned over the course of their career, and what they think is coming next for tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Who Code Conversations. I'm Sierra Ryan, and I'm here with the fantastic Vui Nguyen to talk about our experiences volunteering with Women Who Code. Uh, Vui, do you want to get us started by introducing yourself? Yes, I would love to. Uh, so great to see you again, Sierra. Uh, I'm Vui Nguyen, and I'm a lead at Women Who Code. I've been a software engineer for over 20 years, and I'm currently working as a senior iOS consultant at Atomic Robot. It's so great to be here and talking to you, Vui. Uh, I'm Sierra, and I am a leadership fellow at Women Who Code for our mobile track, and also a previous director for Women Who Code Cincinnati, and currently a software engineer as my day job. Uh, Vui, we've both been involved with Women Who Code for several years, so I kind of want to start at the beginning and talk a little bit about how we you first found out about Women Who Code, and then how you decided to join, or why you decided to join. Sure, i uh, love to share that. So I first found out about Women Who Code uh, back in 2012 uh, when the new uh, Boulder Denver chapter started. And that's when I joined as a member. And I found out about the mobile track of Women Code in late 2019. And I joined the Slack group back then. What inspired you to join your local chapter? Um, Well, so I've mentioned uh, earlier that uh, I've been a software engineer for over 20 years and um, like there were were not a lot of resources for women in tech when I uh, started my career and uh, it really started um, happening more like late 2010s, you know, with women code and um, let's see, like Rails Bridge and uh, Girl Development and all these groups started coming out. And uh, I mean, I decided to check it out and, um, you know, just wanted to be around uh, other women technologists. I love that. Um, For me, I was moving back to Cincinnati. I had um, moved to Columbus for several years to go to graduate school and was coming back to Cincinnati to have my first real job in uh, my hometown Um, and was just really looking for opportunities to network. I was really coming back to square zero with not knowing a lot of people that were still in Cincinnati, not knowing any software engineers in Cincinnati and realizing that networking and groups like this were gonna be very important for growing my career as a junior engineer. Um, And really just found it based on a search of meetups. No real real reason to join specifically, just what is in Cincinnati that is related to software engineer and I might fit in with that organization. And so I stumbled upon it by searching there and ended up going to a meeting uh, 
for Women Who Code Cincinnati back in the before times when we were meeting in person. Um, at the time, wasn't the right time to get very involved, but it was such a welcoming community. I met some really fantastic people, but ended up having to take kind of a step back to focus on myself. Um, then, and so several years later, back in, I guess, 2019, um, I was at a much better place and ready to kind of get more involved in the community around me. And so I said, hey, Women Who Code so many years ago was so incredible. Um, I should find out more and start going to their meetups and found out that that chapter had gone dormant. And so my real introduction to Women Who Code was trying to relaunch our Cincinnati chapter. Um, and as part of that process of learning how to launch a chapter and how to get involved with Women Who Code, I also along the way found out about the mobile track, which is of course where you and I also met. Um, so uh, you've been involved with Women Who Code for a while. How have, what have you done for Women Who Code and how have you been involved with the, with the different chapters? Sure. Um... So I am a volunteer lead for the uh, Boulder Denver chapter and uh, also a volunteer lead for the mobile track, as you know, since uh, 2020. And of course, that's how uh, we know each other. Um, so I've done uh, lots of different uh, volunteer activities, um, mostly uh, centered around speaking at events. Uh, planning and running events and workshops and moderating watch parties like uh, for women co-conferences, uh, WWDC, uh, etc. And um, so I, I like to speak on a couple of uh, big events uh, that I uh, that I uh, helped organize. Uh, one of them was for an open source workshop. Uh, that I taught in early 2020. This is when the pandemic first started, and this is where uh, over 100 people watched my talk, and at least a couple dozen uh, stayed behind for the hands-on workshop, uh, and they were able to contribute to an open source repo that I built just for the workshop. And uh, another really impactful event that I organized uh, for the mobile track was when I taught a couple of lightning talk workshops. And this is where I personally mentored about half a dozen members of the mobile track on technical speaking. And I hosted meetups where the members uh, gave their talks. And I wanna mention like for a lot of these women, it was their first talk and all of them have since gone on to give talks at other meetups and conferences. That is so incredible. Um, I feel like breaking into open source can be a very overwhelming, um, that first step can be very overwhelming, especially um, if you've never done it before. And then pretty much the same thing with public speaking as well. Um, also, so hard to make that first step to get into public speaking. So I think both of those events and your involvement there were so impactful to so many different people. And those resources being available to, during the pandemic were really, really important. Um, for me, I started as a director of Cincinnati. I mentioned that's kind of how I really dipped my toes into Women Who Code was diving all the way in and opening up, opening up, relaunching the chapter here in Cincinnati. Um, and then kind of grew um, my involvement as I learned more about the organization and met some incredible women and was so inspired to kind of help those communities grow. 
And so I'm also the 2021 to 2022 mobile fellow to help support our mobile track. Um, some of the things that I worked on in Cincinnati um, that I'm most proud of um, with this wonderful team of engineers that we have running our Cincinnati chapter as well is that we were faced with a really big challenge of launching a local community versus the mobile track um, during the pandemic as well. And so trying to figure out how we could be how we could be support our community the best, um, knowing that we were all close by, but knowing that we were also gonna grow that and that those relationships virtually. Um, and so we experimented with a lot of different types of um, event structures. So we really focused on lightning talks also in Cincinnati. So I love what you talked about with doing that with the mobile track. Um, one of my proudest accomplishments for our, our team in Cincinnati is that we have hosted over 50% of first time speakers in this local Cincinnati chapter, because I think it's so important for um, engineers to be able to feel comfortable sharing their expertise in public. Um, and then also hosting a lot of discussion groups, which have been some of my favorite events. Um, it really gave everyone, I think, an outlet to have a conversation with a defined topic, because I think having that conversation with basically strangers can be so overwhelming as well and to just come there and share something. And so having some kind of structure where we had some kind of moderation, whether that was articles, we put a lot of articles about being a woman in tech, interesting things that were happening in tech that mm -hmm. gave us some kind of structure for things that we might be able to talk about. And then we also had a really fun Hacktoberfest, which is one of my favorite events. Um, we did in, in September, uh, enter to GitHub to kind of get everyone familiar with the tool. And then in October, um, we also built out a bunch of different projects where you could contribute to a front end, you contribute to a mobile project, or you can contribute to our back end projects that we had this robust um, project at the end and everyone can win their free t-shirts for the month of October through DigitalOcean. Yeah, that is really awesome hearing about the Hacktoberfest. Uh, you know, it's so much work. Uh, Putting together those sorts of open source events. I mean, I know since I, I've helped with those uh, kinds of activities before, and uh, you know, like being able to create a project that people can contribute to for the event. That's a lot of work as well. Uh, and I want to say kudos for uh, creating space for first-time speakers and that. Um, that 50% uh, new speakers at um, the meetups, uh, that is fantastic. Especially, you know, doing that during the pandemic because I feel like, you know, I've been technically uh, technically speaking for um, for over 10 years, so I was able to hone my skill like uh, mostly before the pandemic. So I was able to do that. Uh, mostly in person and I know that in some ways at least for me it's hard to do it online it's a different dynamic and so to take not only someone who's never um, done much public speaking before but to train them to do it in this online environment I think is just really fantastic and you know with women code you know people feel feel safe and um, you know they feel more confident doing it in a supportive environment like women who code. Well, I love that you did that for the mobile track. And I always find it interesting how different 
different strokes for different folks. I totally prefer speaking in the virtual space because I can have my notes up there and have that script written and available to me while I'm doing those sorts of public speaking. So I love seeing that dynamic of, I loved virtual speaking. And so I encouraged everyone to do it during the pandemic because I was like, this is easier um, versus uh, you had a lot more experience even before the pandemic than I did. And so you have that comparison of um, speaking in person versus speaking virtually that I didn't have when I uh, kind of got started in public speaking. Um, when I think about everything that we've done for the mobile track, I really struggle to talk about what I personally do because I see myself as just the party director, the cruise director for all of our incredible volunteers. And all I really want to do is be an enabler for all of your all's fantastic ideas because I'm so privileged to have such a wonderful team to work with. Um, but when I kind of reflect on uh, how I was involved with the mobile track, I really eased my way in. So I think that when you talk about your experience, you had a lot of um, experience with meetups that weren't focused on women um, and women engineers. And so you had that, um, that background, whereas Women Who Code was one of the first meetups that I really got very actively involved in. And so it was a way for me to gain a lot of confidence. And so I really just dipped my toes in and started small. And so I started by really um, mentoring a lot of different people in the mobile track who were trying to um, grow as Android engineers and doing that a lot in a kind of one-on-one -on -one way um, mm -hmm. where I could just have an individual conversation. And as that, that scope grew and I had more and more people reaching out to me, I realized that that was an opportunity to kind of dip my toes into public speaking. And so I started hosting a uh, Android study group on Friday afternoons where you could bring me any kind of Android topic and I would try to put together some kind of practice project. Um, and then we would talk to get together on a Zoom call and talk it through and answer any kind of questions that people have. Or they could also send me any kind of pull request or uh, code samples and I'd try to review those and I had blocked out these two hours on my Friday afternoon. And as that continued to go well, I kind of started planning events and then trying to help other folks kick off their events and engage with our community with things like our watch parties, book clubs. We, had, we have really fun social events where we just get together and play games and all of these different things to really just help our community grow as well. Well, uh, as you can see, uh, Sierra has done so many things, um, but I want to add on to Sierra's many, many activities and accomplishments. I think one of the biggest things that she's done as a mobile tra track fellow and what Sierra was doing even before that was uh, helping to uh, build up the mobile track uh, community and building on that foundation that our previous fellows have already started doing. Um, I want to say that our a previous fellow, Mackenzie, once said that uh, the mobile track Slack is like a daily group chat. Like we're always talking like every day, you know, we're just all really good close friends and we're all supporting each other in our lives and careers and talking every day. And, you know, just having that close community and the fact that Sierra has played such a big role in creating that. And I just want to add that I think it is such a team effort and that everyone in our community contributes to that. And I have so much, I'm so appreciative of all of our past fellows for handing me a community that was already so active and 
welcoming and kind that it was very easy to continue to grow on that momentum um, to push our community forward as well. So I think that we've really covered a lot of really cool things that we have both done um, and helped with for both our mobile community and our individual communities as well um, in, our, in our regions. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us why you volunteer um, and how did you get involved as a volunteer in volunteering? Sure, I'd, I'd love to share that. And um, there was kind of uh, a gap between me joining as a member of Women Who Code and just like going to, to meetings and, and meetups and so forth and actually being an active uh, volunteer. And part of that is because, you know, uh, it took me a little while to have an aha moment to make me realize that I could get more out of this by volunteering, you know, in addition to just being a member that participates occasionally. So the impetus for me for volunteering in women in tech groups is I want to share a story that um, some years ago, uh, I used to run my own technical meetup in the Denver area for Titanium. So I, before I became a native iOS developer, I was a cross-platform mobile developer using Titanium. And so I was very active in uh, running this meetup, not just organizing it, but oftentimes also being the one giving the talks at this meetup. And at the time, uh, the majority of the people that attended my meetup were male. And so I believe that was the reason why like a lot of people back then kind of saw me as like an organizer or an admin of this meetup instead of treating me like the technical expert that I was, even though I was also doing a lot of the speaking. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And then like I mentioned, before you know, all these um, women in tech groups started coming up in the Denver area. So I started volunteering by uh, speaking and uh, running workshops, teaching workshops uh, at Rails Bridge, at Girl Develop It, you know, these meetups. And something changed for me because like when I did that, like. I was doing all the same things I used to do before, but this time the audience was mostly women and they were so appreciative of what I was doing. And suddenly I had, instead of being treated like, you know, the person uh, scheduling these meetings and getting the pizza, I was actually looked at as a technical expert. And they, I had women like looking up to me and wanting to be like me. And that's when I realized that you know, this was a community that I needed to serve, that I needed to be a part of. So that's kind of what helped me decide that, you know, volunteering for women in tech groups, including Women Code, is uh, what I should be doing, what I want to be doing. Um, and I, you know, want to add that it's very important for um, women in tech to be able to bring their full selves, but because we can't do that, uh, in most of the places that we work. So um, until we can do that, it's important that we create spaces where we can bring our full selves, like at Women Code. And by creating those spaces, hopefully we can support each other and expanding those safe spaces to outside of Women Code. 
I love that. And I just want to start by saying, I definitely appreciate everything you do for the community. And I am so grateful to have so many strong iOS folks and our, on our volunteer team to bring your technical expertise to half of the community that we really serve uh, with Women Who Code Mobile as well. Um, for me, I was, like I mentioned, I, I came to a time when I had the capacity to be involved with an organization like Women Who Code. And so I was reaching back out to the previous organizers and previous groups and just finding out it didn't exist. Um, I thought that was a huge hole in the Cincinnati tech community. And so becoming a volunteer, I almost felt like I had to, um, to, to be able to make sure this, this sort of really important organization, these really important resources were brought back to Cincinnati. Um, I think there are so many great women in tech organizations available around the United States and around the world, really, um, but especially in those before pandemic times when a lot of things were very in-person and geographically centered, mm -hmm. um, having that lack of support in the Midwest felt like we were missing um, opportunities to grow professionally, have an in-person uh, network to lean on, having those opportunities to learn about other jobs in the Cincinnati market, um, other opportunities in the Cincinnati market. And something that you said that I really resonate is making sure that that inclusive and welcoming community that we definitely, I think, have with Women Who Code is those practices are shared to these other um, tech meetups as well. Um, I think that Cincinnati has a really good tech community and a lot of really good meetups organized by really good people, but making sure that all of those best practices for building safe, inclusive spaces are shared across these different organizations so that women are, um, are welcome in all of those different places and not just women obviously but all kinds of underrepresented groups and technology and so by having something like women who code you have that safe space where everyone can come together and have those conversations about these sorts of things and again also have opportunities to speak become technical expertise in the region that you're you may be geographically tied to for me i definitely want to stay in cincinnati i love cincinnati it might be a small midwest town but my family's here and i like it um, and so building that community here was really important to me. And then once I kind of got involved with Women Who Code, it just made sense to continue um, to be more involved uh, because I was getting so many benefits from it to make sure that those were available to other women as well. And I think that's something kind of special about both you and I, Vui, is that we're both involved in both our regional chapter and then also this technical track, which I think is like the perfect mix of both worlds is having this community that I know women here in Cincinnati that I could go and get a coffee with or talk about opportunities in Cincinnati and these sorts of things, but also having this community where I can have really deep technical discussions and find support to grow in my particular area of expertise that might be even a little bit harder to find in Cincinnati as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what are some of the benefits that you've experienced from volunteering? How has it helped your career? Uh, sure. Uh, would love to share that. So I would say that getting involved uh, can help you build relationships and help you build a su support system for yourself and others. Uh, again, you know, I've mentioned this before, but it's so important to have a safe space to connect with like-minded people um, because you know, 
tech is fun and it's rewarding, but it can also be a lonely place if you're one of the few or you're the only where you work. And I know that being the only is a common experience for many women in tech. I think for me, the biggest thing uh, as far as benefits for volunteering is that uh, volunteering has allowed me to build my leadership and technical skills in a safe space. And you know, Women Code is a very supportive environment for those that want to take risks and to really stretch themselves. So, you know, like with technical speaking, I found that the best way to learn something is to teach it to someone else. And as for planning and running, organizing these events, I found that doing these things has allowed me to build my confidence and my leadership skills. And I've been able to use those same skills to become technical lead and a project lead at my previous jobs. Um, and I think the fact that uh, I'm a women co-lead and I've done all these community activities, including the technical speaking, that that has been seen as a positive when I went to interview for my last job and even for my current position. I love this. And I think that that is a sentiment that is really shared across um, our volunteer team and a lot of things that I hear from a lot of folks in the women who code community of benefits that it's brought very directly to their career growth. Um, the one that really resonates with me is, is just relationships, both like personal and professional. Mm -hmm. um, Women Who Code was such a good place to get started, uh, to start more publicly sharing my Android expertise. And it allowed me to more, a more approachable route to get more connected with the larger Android developer community. Mm -hmm. um, I think my first official conference talk was a Women Who Code Connect talk. And so that talk is actually something that I have given several times um, throughout my career and continue to iterate on it every time I give it. Um, but that talk directly impacted uh, my path to becoming a Google developer expert and building these relationships outside the community by building my self-esteem up, um, making, making connection with other folks in the energy industry that I really respect and wanted to have those sorts of connections by inviting them to come speak at our track. Um, and so all of these things together were so impactful to becoming a Google developer expert for Android. And I couldn't have done that without being involved with a community like Women Who Code. And not only being involved in that community, but actively volunteering, seeking out these opportunities, building this um, much larger network for myself. Uh, I think it's also really important to talk about how much it's helped me in my personal life is having these connections, um, making really wonderful friendships like with you and some of our other volunteers uh, and having that support system that understands like the problems that I have as a woman in tech, understanding how, what kind of goals and why those are really important to me and how I can help, how they can help me achieve those sorts of things, helping me grow as a better developer, as a better leader, as a better mentor for folks. Um, and I'm also just so grateful for all the, the personal benefits that come along with this professional growth as well. I, I love how like you and I, we started in different places. Like, you know, you started your, your networking and everything in Women Code and then branched out into the, the general tech world. And I started in the general tech world and then got more involved with uh, women who code um, but in the end we, we both converged on you know women who code is a really great community to help help both of us like in different ways 
And I think that it really goes to speak and kind of leads into some of our next question is um, there, there's space at Women Who Code for everyone um, mm -hmm. and that there's opportunities no matter where you are in your journey or where you're coming from um, as well. And so I kind of want to talk a little bit about how um, advice for folks who might be interested in getting started as a volunteer. Mm -hmm. um, and so my personal advice for anyone who's thinking about volunteering is really knowing your own priorities and what you hope to get out of volunteering. Uh, Vu and I just talked about all the ways that volunteering has helped us with our careers. And I think that there's a misconception that volunteering needs to be purely altruistic and all about helping people and all about supporting the community. And so I see volunteers often say yes to any opportunity um, because they're so because they want to see that community grow and to be more involved and to support um, everyone. And I, of course, think it's amazing um, as an organizer and I will always accept everyone's help, but I think that you should spend some time thinking about what kind of areas that you might wanna grow and how being a volunteer can help you reach those goals. Um, and so if you want to grow your leadership skills, maybe you don't get those opportunities at your office is volunteer for Women Who Code, offer to help organize and manage an event series. Mm -hmm. If you want to help network with the community, um, I really recommend um, being involved in like one of our speaker outreach teams so that you can get face-to-face -face times with um, other developers in the community that you might really respect or want to meet. Um, if you want to be want to grow as a technical expert, offering to run some kind of event series to show your technical expertise could be a really good choice. Or there's also so many choices for just things that you might like doing. Um, I always point to the incredible Vivian who runs our Women Who Code social media team because I am not a social media guru and she definitely is. And so that is something that she enjoys doing and she helps us create such beautiful graphics that I appreciate so much. Or um, both Vivian and Madonna are our OG uh, Women Who Code mobile volunteer team. And so, um, she runs some incredible Android dev hangout spaces and has also um, pulled that into our Women Who Code mobile community to help us run spaces and reach out to our community in that way. And then you already talked about how you ran those lightning talks. And I know you have so much experience giving talks. So finding a way to really use that experience that you have bringing into the community um, to benefit the community as a whole. Yeah, and I uh, want to say, you know, basically plus one to everything that Sierra just said. And uh, I really agree with the, the piece about knowing what you want to get out of it. I think that's really important because, uh, you know, then you don't have to feel like you have to do everything, but do, do the thing that will like benefit you and also the community and, and grow in the areas that you're interested in growing. So I think that's really great advice. Yeah, I think helping the community comes with no matter every opportunity we have. And so being able to focus on what will help you and help the community puts us both in like a much better place. And I think that you as an individual will get a lot more out of it if it's doing something that you want to be doing um, as well. I think on the flip side of that is saying yes to too many things. And so Vui, I wanted to ask you if you have any advice on bal balancing volunteering, work, life, self-care, how to avoid burnout um, when you're adding these extra things into an already busy life that we all, all seem to have. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. So I, I wanna say that, uh, you know, to avoid burnout 
and you know try to put everything in, in the right balance you know don't feel like you have to take on the biggest tasks and don't feel like you have to do everything all the time right so you know like with anything of course you get more out of it what you put into it but if you start to feel stress or burnout it's okay to take a break or pause and play a small role or you know as sierra suggested you know take stock in what's important to you and and really think about that and and reprioritize uh, and don't feel like you have to be a superstar like sierra to make a difference or like Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> you know just show up in any capacity that you can um, you know, that makes such a difference to someone else because you never know who's looking up to you or how much it means to someone else just to see your face. Uh, I've learned from volunteering that it helps other people to just see your face because then they can see themselves in you and then that helps them believe that they can do what you do. And I like to uh, share this wonderful story about one of our members uh, in the mobile track, Claudia. She shared in uh, the Slack that she was uh, chatting with her uh, niece, I guess, talking about possible careers. And she suggested uh, to her niece, well, what about uh, software development? And her niece said, well, I can't do that because there aren't any women that code. And uh, I guess Claudia then showed some group pictures of the, the mobile track on Twitter. And she said, um, these are my friends and they're all software engineers. So, you know, you never know who you could touch by just, you know, being involved in any way you can. That story literally makes me tear up every time I hear it. <laughs> And why I always appreciate uh, everyone making sure we take photos at all of our uh, Women Who Code mobile events as well. Uh, I also think that Women Who Code does, organizers really put a lot of stock in folks taking time for themselves and meeting people where they are and making sure you're taking care of yourselves. Um, and so with the mobile track, with all of our tracks and communities, we only expect we're, we're gonna check in with you after every three months, see if you need to adjust, see if you need to take a step back, see if there's a better role for you because you wanna work on new things. And so we're always trying to meet you where you are and understand that everyone has different personal situations and responsibilities. And that, and even with all of this that we can do to help support you in those volunteer roles, I don't think that you have to be a volunteer to benefit from our community, but it's definitely a bonus to get involved in some of those leadership capacities as well. And with that, I kind of want to wrap up. Vivi, do you have any pro tips for being, for working in tech that you want to share with our larger community? Sure. I like to tell people to just go ahead and put yourself out there. So meaning if you've been thinking about uh, publishing that app or writing that technical article uh, or giving that talk, just go ahead and do it. Uh, I know it may be scary and you might think that uh, it's not good enough, but like I said before, you never know who's looking up to you. So just go ahead and do it. And my pro tip is to follow up on that and say, when you put yourself out there, tell our Women in Code community about it because we absolutely want to be your cheerleaders and supporters and celebrate you and send you all of the virtual claps and clap emojis 
um, that we can. Uh, I think that's one of the most wonderful parts of being part of our Women Who Code community is the support that you receive when you put yourself out there, when you meet, reach your goals, when you achieve, uh, achieve your dreams, if you will. Um, I want to wrap up by just telling everyone how to become a volunteer if you're interested, if you like what you hear and you want to um, reach out and take the next step. Um, to find out more about all of our Women Who Code track communities, uh, Vui and I are involved in the mobile track, but we do have six technical tracks that you can also um, join um, that might align with your personal technical expertise. And you can find information about all of those and find all the Slack communities, womenwhocode.com slash tracks. Um, you can also find about local, out about local networks that might be in your area by going to womenwhocode.com slash networks to find out if there is a current Women Who Code chapter, or you can also find out more information about launching your own chapter on our website as well. Mm -hmm. If you have any questions about being a volunteer, um, please don't hesitate to reach out to Vui and I. We would love to talk more about being a volunteer with Women Who Code. Um, you can reach out to either of us on Twitter. Um, Zoe's handle is at sunfishgirl, and mine is at underscore Sierra O'Brien, or you can also reach out to me, Sierra, O'Brien, Sierra at womenwhocode.com. Zoe, it has been so wonderful talking to you today, and I cannot wait to meet all of our future volunteers uh, for Women Who Code. And Sierra, it's been really great talking with you also, and yeah, I can't wait to see all of you uh, join us uh, at the upcoming Connect Conference and at all of our Women Code events. Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that features experts in a specific field of technology sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. These talks are designed to both introduce advanced subjects and provide insight into the work being done in these fields. I'm really excited to share y'all uh, with y'all today about um, how we take big data and DevOps and apply it in clinical genetic applications and make precision medicine possible. So again, a quick quick background background on who I am. I'm Angelina. I have been work, I work as a full stack dev at UAB um, in this in the Center for Computational Genomics and Data Science. I have been a professional software engineer for about ten years now. Um, across multiple industries, from the aerospace, Department of Defense, and then recently, last four years, in the biotech industry. I'm also a director for, one of the directors for Huntsville's Women Who Co-Chapter, and I'm on the board for a local tech conference called V Rocket Conf, which celebrates excellence and diversity in tech. Um, if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at SeriousHornCat. I don't just post about tech stuff on there as a warning, and you probably will have to get really cool about a bunch of stuff really quick. Um, so let's get started with what we are here for today. We'll talk about a little bit about our group and what we do. We are a multidisciplinary team of software engineers, bioinformaticists, geneticists, and data scientists. And our goal of the center is to develop efficient and effective software to analyze OMIC's data, um, to come up with novel information that provides benefits for patients suffering from rare disease, undiagnosed or misdiagnosed disease, and the families and the people that take care of them. Um, we focus primarily on interpreting molecular variation within a parent, patient, and our goal is to help clinical decision-making in the present. We don't want to work on software that's going to help people five years from now. We want to work on software that helps people right now. 
And so our goal of all of this is to make precision medicine cheap as possible so it can be as accessible as possible. So today I'm going to cover three big topics. I'm going to cover the basics of what genomic sequencing is and its relation to precision medicine. I'll then go into talking about our, the DevOps strategies our team has um, adopt, adopt, adopted <laughs> in order to tackle these problems. And then I want to, this is a more recent thing I've added to the talk, is a case study of how we recently had to apply all these strategies um, due to the current COVID-19 crisis. The hospital um, reached out to us in need of help for coming up with a centralized inventory system for all the different labs popping up doing a combination of commercial and um, local lab testing for COVID-19. Um, and how, how we were able to make an application from conception to production within six days. Um, it did involve crazy hours of working. It wasn't a normal work week. Um, but we volunteered because we knew our colleagues were putting their lives on the line um, in the, meta, um, the front line in, in um, the hospitals and the clinics, and we thought this was the least we could do. So I'm going to give a little bit um, introduction to like genomics. So what is a genome? A genome is essentially a code to describe who you are and how you're built um, biologically. Um, it has uh, some information like your hair, eye color and hair color, or it can go even to something about how likely you're going to have nosebleeds. Um, it is um, comprised of 3.2 billion characters um, in length, um, and it's it's super high density storage. It's super coiled to be super tight. You can for one gram of DNA, you can hold up to one approximately one billion terabytes of data. Um, and it's really robust because it can last a really long time. You can sequence fragments that are thousands of years old. And it's organized by 46 chromosomes. And so 22 autosomal pairs plus an XX for females or XY for males. Um, and if you put them all together and line them all up, it's approximately 1,000 trips from the Earth to the Sun. But how is this code written? Um, in computers, um, CPUs understand zeros and ones, and that's it. Um, our DNA is written in um, four different types of nucleotides called A's, T's, C's, and G's is how we code them, adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. And these bonds are in pairs that are, um, then they're rungs on this double helix ladder that, um, that we all know that's famous. How does all that translate into precision medicine? So essentially what we'll do is we have a patient and on the um, counterclockwise path, you'll see the, the typical path that you would imagine when you go to a physician. Um, you get medical data and they, they research to figure out what's wrong. Um, on the clockwise side, you see take a sample from the patient, it does not have to be blood, and you put it into what's called a sequencing machine. And then that machine outputs really, really large files of A's, T's, C's, and G's and um, quality metrics. And then we process that in what's called a secondary analysis and secondary pipeline to reduce that data um, to get it consolidated for a variant analyst or um, a physician to take a look at to understand what are the um, molecular variations and what could be causing um, your disease. So how does the secondary uh, pipeline kind of work? 
you have your DNA, and you put this in the sequence machine, and it cuts it up into a bunch of tiny, tiny little pieces. And then it outputs that, um, outputs those reads in what's called a FASTQ file. Now, this FASTQ is not aligned. Um, it's not in order. So then you have to run software to put this, this file and these reads in order. So we compare the, um, your, your, the results of the sequencing to a reference, and then we align it that way. And we say, okay, this is where this piece belongs and this piece belongs. Um, then once we have it aligned, then we look for the differences between the reference and um, the patient that you just sequenced. And the results of that, those differences are put in what's called a variant call file, which is sort of the standardized format. People are a little bit loose in how they apply it um, in some of the columns, but it's, it's what most um, bioinformaticians use for um, doing variant analysis. And so we can kind of show with this picture a little bit of how that aligning process works and looking for those variants. You have two reads. Um, they've lined them up at these two locations compared to this reference. And then you can see the differences at these in chromosome one and both of these different positions. There's a T in the reference and then there's a G in the patient. Okay, so we have our references, we have our variants now, I mean. And so we have those variants, we need to share them uh, to put them in front of the variant analyst. So typically we'll have two users go through an analysis, adding their knowledge and curations and choosing variants that they find interesting. And they'll come together to discuss and present in front of the entire variant analysis team to decide which variants are believed to be causing the disease. And here's an example of some of the software that we developed with our team at Hudson Alpha, which owns this piece of software called Codicum. And this all leads into our goal for making precision medicine accessible. We, a lot of these patients, they can be on these medical odysseys to eight to nine years, or they might not even live that long to get their answers. And so, the faster we can make this process of sequencing and analysis, the cheaper it can become. And that's really our goal is to make as many people be able to have this to get help. And so now I'm gonna hop into talking on the tech side of things that I'm more comfortable talking about and talk about our DevOps strategies and how, how we use them to do this process. So we had the, the challenges that we have to the um, encounter are, we are a very multidisciplinary team of scientists and engineers, and we work really close together. Um, and any work that requires manual intervention injects risk and wasted effort, which includes costing more money, which makes it less accessible. Um, and so there's also a need for a quick turnaround time to help facilitate that collaboration. And again, the challenge of software engineering and translational biological research processes, they evolved into two very different environments. And so how a software engineer goes about their work the way and do things is very different than what a scientist probably in a lab would go about their day doing things. And so trying to, to figure out the best way for us to interact and collaborate. Um, the one cool thing about where I work is, is that Dr. Worthy has given us the time and empowers us to really to think about this process and how we collaborate and work together. Um, this is a poster I presented at Genome Informatics at Cold Spring Harbor last fall. 
And I was the only poster there that talked about how we can do, how we can create a team of scientists and engineers creating software together. Um, it's not something that science teams are really focused on doing is making efficient processes. Um, so adding software engineers into the mix has been kind of an interesting challenge and figuring out how we can be effective together and still have a happy work life is really important to us. So we kind of came up with uh, this, this set of criteria for whenever we come up and do something in regards to DevOps. Um, we are very intentional. We don't just try things without a reason. Um, when we meet, we have daily stand-ups that involves the entire center. Um, and then once a week, we have a group meeting, which involves presentations from anyone on the team. It could be a science research. It can be some new technology. But we interact daily with everyone on the team. And that's very different for scientists who might talk to a colleague once a week. Um, but we are very intentional to make sure we have the points in place so that we can have that those conversations when we are ready to have those conversations. Um, we acknowledge that we're always going to be improving and be iterative. We know it's not that we're going to have the process right. It's going to be just the way the current process is, and it can be different in the future when it needs to be. Um, and again, we, we automate as much as possible to guarantee quality. Um, another important thing is making a persistent framework to evaluate what we're doing. We don't want to always change the goalpost and where we want to evaluate different things as we're working on them. So we kind of make something that's persistent so that we can make similar decisions. Um, and a challenge that we had in the past that we didn't anticipate in previous versions of our team is anticipate scaling. And that's something that we've built into this process to be very conscious about because we want to bring in lots more people to help us on our work. And it's always changing. Um, it's not going to be the same as it was a few months ago. How we work now is definitely not how we worked in January, for sure. We're all remote now in the meantime. So um, these are kind of the criteria we have when we, we implement and do things within the uh, center. Um, so the very first thing we do is we came up with something called our manual of operations. It holds something called has our charter and mission statement, and it clearly defines expectations and conduct in the center and how we expect people to treat each other and behave. Um, we define our core values as diversity, teamwork, respect, excellence, integrity, and tenacity. When we interview people to join our group, we send them a, a version of our charter and mission statement so they know exactly who we are and who they're interviewing with. Um, we have colleagues that are from marginalized communities, and we want to ensure they are protected and safe in their work environment. So um, that is something we do. We send out to anyone that we're interviewing so they know who we are. Um, also, it serves as a place of truth, the MOO, to process um, of the processes that we follow in the center. When we decide to make a change, we make a merge request to our Git, Git repository. And then once it gets approved and merged into the primary branch, and then it goes into effect. And um, we have a system that automatically deploys it. Um, something that this MOO has helped with is it also has come up with a common vocabulary. So we can create a language of how we can communicate with each other. Because how someone says one thing doesn't mean the same thing to another person. And then when you have people across industries having to tightly collaborate, that can cause a lot of chaos. So it's a place where you can explicitly define um, how we talk about things. 
And so some of the technical aspects of that, as it's a deployed static HTML site, it's generated using uh, make docs from Markdown in a Git project, and it's deployed using continuous deployment, and it's hosted on our DevOps cluster. And so that leads into the next thing that we do is we have a DevOps cluster. Um, we wanted to eliminate um, the, the time it takes to set up an, an environment to use. And so we are really lucky that UAB has a high-performance com um, compute cluster that uh, UAB Research Compute manages, and they host an on-prem cloud um, of OpenStack for us. So we get to play with using, um, we can source control this and use Terraform to spin up our VMs and manage the lifecycle of those, and then on OpenStack, and then we provision those machines using Ansible. And then when we spin up all our applications, we use Docker Compose. And then leading into that, we add on to that. So we added some container orchestration so that we can do the live deployments and health checks and systematically taking down services. This was very important um, when we were trying to address scaling for our projects and our services. Um, so we were intentional, we were very intentional in adding this. Um, we use a combination of traffic to route the requests and then Docker Swarm to manage the lifecycle. The cool thing about Docker Swarm and traffic is they work really well together and they manage these things autonomously at the same time. So it's really cool. And then here's, um, we, we apply continuous integration and continuous deployment. And these are a lot of things that y'all are probably going to be more familiar with. Um, we rely on the previous work we've done to generate metrics so we can help answer questions about what we've been doing as work and, and the work that we, how we want to do it in the future. And then it's all automated again, our packaging, our releasing, our deploying process. So that removes a lot of manual work so we can do more time in programming or collaborating. Um, and we use Jenkins to manage this pipeline. Um, something that um, we encountered was so now we've inter in, um, intersecting with the research um, researchers, and and we had to acknowledge that the quality of a project doesn't need to be the same for every project, but it needs to be defined so that we can all agree on some parameters. And so we came up with, according to a project's visibility, it has different quality metrics. A lot of um, bioinformatics pieces of software are attached to papers that are made and just thrown out into the wild to be used. Um, and that's fine most of the time. Um, but sometimes it's not, and it's not tested and validated. And um, the quality just isn't there. And this has led to, um, there was one piece of software that was released a few years ago. It wasn't tested or anything. And a few years later, it came out that there was something really wrong with it, and it invalidated over 70 different people's research um, because it would have skewed their results. So um, something that we're trying to do is to put these in checks in place for everyone on the team. It doesn't matter if you're a data scientist or a software engineer or a bioinformatician. And so here are some of those guidelines that we use. Um, for specifically in-house and external and open source. So in-house for us um, is just something that's used within our team, within the center. And then once something becomes internal, it's usually within a collaborator in our UAB community. So 
Um, an example of that would be our DevOps cluster we spin up. We share that with Research Compute. Um, share that project. So that would be an external project. And we haven't gotten there yet, but we hope to be hosting and running open source projects in the future. And then we, I mean, so this includes adding, um, adding testing metrics that we want to apply and have all these automated as much as possible. Um, that way we can all kind of have the same starting point and expectations for how we expect things to work. And so when we do have scientists that are trying to add some of these things in, they'll be paired up with developers to kind of help them integrate these um, test this testing into their work so that we can then easier pull their work into ours when we're really creating a product. So those are just most of the DevOps strategies that we do that we find that have been extremely helpful to us as a team. Um, this is, um, is, we felt like this, this work has made us extremely successful in the um, year the center has been together. And by successful, I mean we have a positive quality of life at work, which is really important in, in the center and it has made a, a positive impact on our community. So leading into that, I want to talk about our case study, the how we apply these principles to a project that we recently had to do. Um, due to the recent pandemic at UAB Hospital, um, they had to quickly spin up a bunch of testings for COVID-19. And there was a scarcity at the beginning in the necessary supplies for testing. And so, um, and the clinical labs couldn't just rely on the commercial vendors. They did not have the supplies necessary. So then the labs that got spun up in our testing had to do both lab developed testing and the commercial testing in order to accommodate the high volume of testing needed. Um, this um, led to the directors were having trouble and providing accurate information to the healthcare systems in regards to their testing capacity. Um, they really needed an accurate way to determine the daily capacity uh, across all the multiple vendors and platforms for testing. And there was an absence of a centralized planning of organizations and we're having to do a lot of manual labor of walking around and asking people questions multiple times a day which was vulnerable to errors and inaccurate reporting. Um, and you couldn't do long-term planning and strategizing, which you should be needing to do. So upon hearing this problem, our lab director volunteered our team. We could help out with this problem. And so at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, um, she called a meeting, which is very rare. She has a very strict no-meeting policy Friday afternoons. So we knew something was really important. <coughs> And after learning about the dire situation at the hospital, our team got to work right away on setting this project. And that's how we started on our six-day journey to develop this program. Um, I say six days, but there was it was Easter weekend. So, because um, we have several people that are Christian on our team, they did take the Sunday off. Um, but I am proud to say that we were successful in creating the application and it was ready for deployment by Thursday. It did involve insane hours, um, which I don't typically condone. I don't condone working extra um, overtime a lot, unless it's like, super necessary. Um, but this was a crisis again, as I said earlier, and our colleagues are risking their lives on the front line in the hospitals and clinics. It was the least we could do 
safely from our homes to write software. So we had a bunch of challenges uh, facing our team though when we started this project. We, um, the development team is a really young team. We just hired our new junior devs in early January. So there's two primary software engineers on our team that are seniors and three brand new junior devs that we hired on. Um, being a new team, we hadn't really worked out also how we wanted our tech stack to look like for this project. We've done some of it before in establishing other projects, but we had to really dig in to get it together in order to, um, to for production. Um, again, we're all working from home. Um, we have kids at home. We lacked childcare during the crisis. Um, so we were really privileged. Our spouses accepted the burden so that we could work night and day. So we, I, I like to say that our spouses were kind of the heroes because literally they took all responsibility so I, we could just sit in front of a computer and code. And we did not need that rapid turnaround time because the software was needed the previous week. Um, our data scientists and collaborators had to pick up new skills. The dev team didn't have time to write system tests, so our scientists learned how to write system tests in JavaScript and Cypress. So that was really cool. Um, we, it was limp, the subject matter information in regards to the COVID-19 platforms, we didn't get until halfway through the process. So we had to do a majority of our development without that information. So our researchers went and tried to gather as much information as, for us as possible um, before we were able to get the official information so we could start work. Um, and it was the first time our team was deploying to the hospital's compliant environment. Um, and we were really lucky we had a new teammate that had extensive, extensive experience with working with the hospital's IT and infrastructure. So what contributed to our success? Um, all that talk I just did about investing in our development infrastructure, having that DevOps cluster to stage your builds and having the CI process so that we can be confident that it's the, the, the primary branch is building, the tests are passing as expected, and we can release the software. And um, another thing is the commitment to consistency. We use the same process that we use daily. We didn't change anything. We might have dropped a few things because it was so rapid, but it was very extinctual. So it's like breathing. It's like if you practice it constantly, it'll become more second nature. Um, we didn't require work hours, extra work hours from the team. Um, any extra hours were volunteer. Um, those who couldn't volunteer and didn't were not shamed, which was really important because we didn't want people to feel bad they couldn't or didn't work extra hours. Um, and the mental health was having to be addressed constantly, make sure everyone was okay. Um, again, our automated testing and static analysis saved our team hours of work. Um, being able to rely on LinkedIn, to, especially to help teach our junior devs on how to do things better in JavaScript was life-saving. Um, the cool thing is that you don't need, we didn't need a team of superstar programmers. We just needed a team of people that were really committed, committed to communication and psychological safety on the team. Um, and then the research and data scientists using the same technical language and tools as the developers is helpful. So we were able to pull them and have them help us on the project using the mirror and having that as a guidelines. And they knew that when we were saying things, they knew what we were talking about in um, tech terms. Or um, we both, we all use Rike for our project management and, um, and how they do their work and we do our work. 
we're all trained on the same um, training materials, and um, it it was it was really helpful. Um, I it does sound like it was all happy that yay we got this done in six days, um, but really it was kind of an awful journey. Um, but we're really proud of. Uh, we were really excited and pumped we could help people at the beginning. But halfway through, we were experiencing some burnout. And um, little, it was a little intense. Um, but then I think that's when I learned that psychological safety is not being about ni being nice, per se. And so we all had the psychological safety to, to be unhappy and for people to be accepting and patient with that and listening to what we're saying if we were upset. Um, and then by the end of it, we just we just wanted to take a nap. I, my teammates were joking that like on the last day, I was like, oh, I'll just take a nap for a few hours. And then I apparently fell asleep with my daughter for like four hours and no one knew where I was at. So we were really tired at the end, but we were really proud of the work we did. Um, and afterwards, we worked for about three more weeks, adding additional capabilities. We added um, to projecting the daily test capacity, we were able to add um, where they can report the tests that were run and tests that were positive according to the testing platform. Um, we did follow some serious burnout after that first week. It took us weeks to recover. Our director did acknowledge that though and made us take vacation time to recover. And now this hospital has a centralized tool to project testing capabilities and share testing results with um, administration hospital administration. And I really don't think we could have been, we could have accomplished this if we had not done all that upfront investment in our DevOps process and um, positive work culture. And so that is it. Um, thank you for your time. Um, our team is growing. Currently there is a hiring freeze at UAB, um, but once hiring freeze is, is taken down, um, we will be interesting to expand our team again. So if you're interested in the work we do, um, you're more than welcome to reach out to me at my work email address. Um, you can follow me on Twitter again at SiriusHorncat. Um, if you're curious about the genetic work we do and all the cool stuff, um, I highly recommend following um, our director, Dr. Liz Worthy, on Twitter. And um, if you're curious about what our manual of operations looks like and the content it has in it, I have a public version in a Git, GitLab repository that you can access at the QR code. In the Women Who Code Career Nav segment of our show, you'll hear real-world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed. These talks will include both career advice as well as a look at the industry itself and its practices. My name is Sapphire Duffy and I'm a leadership fellow at Women Who Code. I am based in Northern Ireland and it's short, well, coming up to 8 p.m. for me now and it's quite dark here, so I'll put all the lights on. <laughs> um, so I'm really excited to be joined in this panel with um, Joshi, uh, Sierra and Zarin. And we are really excited to talk about the role of public speaking in career growth and learn how to leverage public speaking opportunities to build an industry of connections and increase your tech profile. So, yeah, during this panel, we will discuss the best practices in submitting your CFP form to a Womeny Code event and others. 
and we'll share tips for an engaging presentation and how to look for opportunities in 2022. So without further ado, let's get right in. So fellows, um, can you each of you introduce yourself and share a memory of your first speaking experience with everyone here? I can go ahead and introduce myself first. Um, I am Sierra O'Brien. Uh, I'm so thankful for being here and so excited that I was invited to sit on this panel. Um, I am the leadership fellow for our mobile track here at Women Who Code. And if you're interested in mobile, I would highly encourage you to come hang out with us. Absolutely. Um, outside of Women Who Code, I am also a senior mobile engineer at Atomic Robot in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, where I work on native Android applications. Um, I had to think a little, a little hard about what I want to talk about with respect to my first memory of um, speaking experience. Um, for some of you who don't know me, I uh, switched careers or at least career paths. Um, I was in school to become a uh, physicist and was in a graduate program. And so when I think back to being in school in that very like academic and research focused environment, I gave talks all the time. And then when I switched into the tech, tech side of the field, of my life and have been on that path ever since. I pretty much stopped speaking for a really long time because it didn't make as much sense for me, to me, as much sense to me, to be talking about things that there were documentation on and these were things that you could easily find answers on. And that was a huge disconnect for me is what am I supposed to talk about when all these things are already written down, already have talks on and these sorts of things. Um, so. What ended up being my first um, talk as I was already at this point a senior developer, I did not publicly speak often on my experience until about five years into my career, is someone just pushed me and asked and said, we never get mobile submissions for this particular conference. It was a conference in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and so that, that, that encouragement and motivation from someone very specifically who like uh, respected me and thought I had valuable opinions to give really pushed me into my first technical speaking experience. And since then, I, I submit a lot, <laughs> talk a lot. Anyone, anyone who will host me, I'm happy to talk more about mobile. Thank you, Sarah. I love that. Um, so Anjali, thanks for joining us. And we're wanting to find out more about each of the fellows. So find out about if you can introduce yourself and share a memory of your first speaking experience. So, so far, Sierra has gone. Would you like to go next, Anjali? Yeah, sure, Sophia. And uh, thank you, thank you all. So I'm Anjali and I'm based out of Singapore, currently working as a solutions consultant in Asia Pack, And I'm also the leadership fellow for the Code blockchain track. Okay, so about my first speaking experience, it was at a Code Connect conference in 2017. It was an in-person event. And I was really very nervous on the day and even the day prior to that. I was wondering, there were too many things going on in my head. One of the things was, will I be able to complete my talk in time? Will I be able to uh, cover all the topics that I'm planning to complete? And then I, when, when I went to the stage, I was so nervous. And um, I just fumbled on the very first sentence. But I feel that the audience was very supportive and I could hear like people being very encouraging and they said, okay, it's okay, you know, just go ahead. And that somehow gave me a lot of confidence and I was very happy and I was able to lead uh, and complete the session on time and covering all the topics that I wanted to. 
So I feel uh, that it's very important to have your first speaking session with a community that actually encourages you and that will make you even more stronger and more confident. So, yeah. Um, I can go next. So, um, hi, I'm Zarin. Uh, I am the leadership fellow uh, of Women Who Code Data Science Track. I have worked as a data scientist in Thales Canada for a little more than two years. And recently, just this week, actually, I joined as an algorithm engineer in Volta. So uh, I'm very happy to be with all the fellows here. And uh, Women Who Code has been a very, uh, you know, it, it played an important role in my career. Probably uh, in the follow up que following questions, we you will know more about it. But my first uh, actual public talk experience was when I uh, participated for a competition called three minute thesis competition when I was doing my master's. So the competition was like, you have to present your entire thesis work in three minutes with one static slide to a wide range of audiences without any technical background necessarily. So I remember like, although the speech was just for three minutes, but I prepared for more than a week to uh, for that talk and i practiced a lot i was extremely scared extremely intimidated because there were even journalists people from all the different areas i haven't even uh, thought of uh, but uh, before uh, getting onto the stage until i get into the stage i was very very scared but once i got into the stage I forgot about everything. I just started speaking and that's that I could do that because I practiced a lot. It, like I practice everything by my heart. So I think that worked really uh, great. So practice, practice a lot. Uh, so that's about me. Uh, Jachi, do you like to go next? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Jachi. I am the leadership fellow for Women Who Code Cloud. Um, I am uh, also a senior uh, engineering manager at GitHub, and that's what I do as part of my day job. In terms of my first speaking experience, um, I don't know if this is my first speaking experience, but certainly one of the most memorable ones is the first time I spoke at PyCon. Uh, I think something really exciting about speaking at PyCon is that it's a very supportive community as well, and it's also a really large conference. You are speaking at a stage in front of a very large room with um there's actually quite a lot of empty seats due to how large the space is but still a big audience and that can be quite shocking um i think what actually i want to touch upon is back when there were in-person conferences it's not just the like speaking on stage it's a whole like experience of getting yourself to a conference meeting other speakers, meeting other, you know, participants and participating in the hallway chat as a speaker because people will come look for you at a conference. They know who you are. They've seen you in the agenda. Um, that's been pretty memorable and a big fun part of my own community is sort of built around the people I've met traveling and speaking. Awesome. Thank you all for sharing um, a bit about you and then also your experience as well. So I think it's really interesting. Um, by the way, Zarin, congratulations on your new job. Applaud her, well done. Um, so yeah, much. I think it's really no problem. Um, congratulations. So I think it's really good that, you know, 
a few people up a really good point about you know people want you to do well um they want you they are encouraging you and I had a similar experience to Anjali, actually. So when I first went on stage, I was petrified, but the community really encourage you and want you to do well. So that's so true. Um, so this then brings us to the next one. So how should you choose what to speak on? Um, so are there certain topics that are better for career development or certain topics appropriate for certain levels? Yeah, I can uh, go first. I think it's really important to speak on things that you identify as part of your personal brand and also things that are part of your um, areas of interest. Um, I know Sierra mentioned that for a while she didn't speak. Uh, so when I was an individual contributor, I had technical topics that I was developing expertise in and I picked those topics to, to speak about. When I became an engineering manager, I actually took a, a big break from speaking because I didn't know what to speak about anymore and how I wanted to present myself publicly. Um, nowadays, I speak more about you know building a remote team and how do I do um, strategic planning with my team? Uh, but I am still very interested in thinking about technical topics that I personally am going to go in depth on and be, you know, have build up that expertise on and also be a part of my brand. So I would say that it really depends on where you want your career to go, how you want to represent yourself uh, and, and picking topics that resonates with you. Um, I think that it can be really, really difficult to choose a topic. I know that is something that I struggle with a lot. Um, and the question that I probably get asked the most often when I bring up asking for speakers and requesting speakers for different events is, I don't know what to talk about. And so um, from my perspective, there's always a couple of different hints that I give people um, for how to pick that. Um, number one is like really thinking about your audience. So when applying to something like Women Who Code, I know that there's going to be a huge, huge array of different technical backgrounds. And so I try to think of something that can be interesting for people outside of mobile as well. Whereas if I apply to an Android specific conference, it's those kind of talks are going to be really technical deep dives in a specific Android topic, because I don't have to necessarily give all that background and build up to get into the meat and content of that particular talk. Um, so really considering your audience. And then if you're still struggling, the hints that I always give everyone is, depending on what kind of conference you're talking to, if you're going one and you're kind of technical expertise, find someone else in your technical expertise and you can talk to them about what you do every day. I find that that, that kind of getting that distance from your own day job and talking to someone who doesn't do your day job every day can be super helpful to picking out things that would be interesting to other people. I know that I work on the same thing day in and day out. And so it's really hard for me to see that as like interesting and cool, but there's so many people who don't do what I do every day. And so those are valid topics for a different talk. And similarly, if you're like doing a talk for a more general audience or a less specific, technical stack, like a Women Who Code conference, talking to someone outside your expertise about things that you do every day um, to kind of get that outside perspective of someone from outside your technical expertise of things that they think are interesting. And then I also always recommend doing thinking about passion projects. It doesn't have to be something that you do every day, 
Um, I just came out of my talk that the opening of that talk is, I don't do this every day. This is not my expertise. It's just something that I think is really cool. And I want to share with you that you can get started at that entry level and talk about it on a stage and present that material without being an expert as well. Awesome. I think Sarah and Jachi have already covered some really great points. Uh, I would probably just add a few things. Uh, so, uh, I mean, what are certain topics that can be, you know, better for your career development? So in that case, I would say like pick topics which shows your depth in that area. So instead of going through like superficially on a lot of topics, if you pick one topic which where your expertise lies in and you can uh, show your depth of knowledge and experience there, then two things will happen. First, the audience will be more engaged. The audience, it will be useful for the audience to learn more about it because you know a lot, so you know how to present them in a relatable way, in a, in a palatable way. Uh, and the second thing is when you are you want to share the public talk with someone else or in, inside your network, people will know that, hey, this person is really an expert in this area. So if I want to reach out to uh, some person regarding this area, I will remember that person. Let me just bookmark her or so something like that. So I think uh, that that are some uh, areas where uh, you, I mean, while choosing a topic, you can think about what are some areas where you can go a little bit deeper uh, in terms of when you're giving the talk. And another thing is like, because I'm sure everyone can relate, like uh, people these days, uh, many people reach out to us or reach out to uh, other people or, or to look up who they look up to right so they come and ask about different uh, like hey can you uh, give me some good resources to get into data science as example like how i can get an internship how i can start learning about machine learning so these kind of things so you can uh, also organize this kind of mentorship or career focused events as well which in in which events you will just share how you started how you started uh, with this career, what you were thinking, how, what are the things that worked for you, what are the things that didn't work for you. So this is also another career, uh, another uh, stream which uh, can be very useful to the community. That is amazing. I think uh, all three of you have covered most of the major points and I agree with all the things and definitely having a deep expertise that also gives you a confidence to go and present a topic. So I think that is amazing. And the other three panelists did, did a great job on covering all the topics. So. Yeah, I totally agree there, Anjali. Thank you, Sierra, Zareen and Jachi. Like you covered pretty um, great, great tips for everyone out there, especially um, Sierra, I like the way you said, thinking about your audience and people outside your audience as well, just um, getting someone, some like ask someone that you don't know, that doesn't do a similar job to you as such and what they would be interested in. I think that's a good um, tip as well. So going on to the next question I have for you all then. So based on your experience, what is the number one mistake when submitting a CFP? Um, I can go first. So I think uh, the very first, it, it may sound very obvious, but I have seen like uh, these things happen. So first of all, it's very important to know what is the theme of that event or what is the theme of the community in general where you are trying to give that talk. So uh, your talk can be a, an excellent topic. You know a lot. You want to like produce a nice talk, but uh, 
probably it doesn't align with the theme necessarily and it can, it may get rejected so it's very important to first learn about if you're uh, applying for let's say in a conference just go to their web page and see what the conference uh, uh, what what the theme of the conference is what are the topics and what their target audience are so based on that if you can uh come up with the talk title i mean you can still talk about the same topic but just you need to uh tweak it a little bit reformulate it a little bit so that it aligns with the team uh with the theme and the target audience that's one important thing i totally agree with you zareen just to add one more point on top of that i think the description also matters so many a times like uh, i have seen and i have heard from people that in the description box uh, you're not giving full description of what your talk is going to be so uh, um, just to give an example if you are going to present on blockchain basics and uh, in the description box you're just going to say that okay i'm going to present on the blockchain basics that's it and if we get a similar submission which says beginner blockchain session and that is more descriptive in the description box they are mentioning what all topics are they going to cover in the blockchain technology then as a reviewer you would obviously uh, select the one which is more descriptive so uh, it's always very important to have the correct amount of description and you're giving all the details in so i would suggest that for all the all the people who are interested to speak make sure that you're giving the correct um, amount of description and make sure that it's not too long or it's not too short all the information that you want to provide you're able to like give in there in with a probably like 100 to 200 words so that that is one of the mistakes which i feel that many a times um, we as speakers or could actually make yeah i love that i think it makes quite a lot of sense cuz you also have to think about once you're accepted then the audience is reading this description to decide whether or not they want to attend the talk and ultimately that's sort of you know who is going to benefit from the experience um i think one mistake i've sort of seen is a lot of bigger conferences uh will actually have a um like a tips or tr and tricks or like a guiding principles for submitting CFP and usually for them if because they do get a lot of submissions uh, you know you we want to follow their like style guide or their guiding principles and and follow um kind of what they're looking for uh i think many people have said this already but everyone wants you to succeed everyone's trying to give you as much information as possible to help you be successful in this um so following through with with some of that it does become really important in getting your um cfp to to go through um all really good call outs and then i just kind of went to wrap up with a reminder that um not getting selected does not necessarily mean that you made a mistake and it might just mean that it was a competitive conference. There's a lot of things and you should see that as a success because now you have a CFP or you have your submission and so you can keep submitting that other places and there are so many places that you can do it including the women who code tracks but lots of local meetups and local user groups as well and so that was not like hard work lost but hard work that you can use somewhere else as well. 
Yeah, I love that, Sierra, and like a lot of conferences and submissions for talks are very competitive. So don't be disheartened. You can always submit to other places as well and reuse that for um, any future um, conferences. So um, Jachi, I really like we said about also about looking at the guidelines for the CFP. Um, so yeah, at Women Co, we help um, our community with submitting um, CFP to our conferences and we host a few panel events before um, any of our conferences as well. And there's a whole community here to help you with your submission too, if you need help with that. So, um, so as we know, the conference selection can be competitive. So um, how do you, how can you make the CFP stand out? What's your advice? Um, Anjali, if you want to go first. Yeah, sure, Sapphire. So um, I think that's a very interesting question, and that's what uh, would be very beneficial for the attendees as well. So according to me, there are a few things which really matter. So the first one I would say is having a catchy title. I just read that somebody in the comment section also asked if we can have a humorous topic. I think that definitely... Uh, that would definitely make you stand out of the other applications, right? People will be more interested to know more about it. So I think having a catchy title is one of the points. The second point, I think, is the content itself. If you have something very unique or, you know, like I said, uh, the description also matters. So if you have something unique or you've worked on something which is uh, not shown in other conferences and it's a new topic, then also you have a higher chance to get accepted. Obviously, it depends on which conference you're submitting to. So yeah, that's other thing. And I think third and the most important thing in my point of view is that having probably I would give a bonus point to somebody who provides in a short sentence that how would their session um, inspire the attendees or how would it benefit the attendees? So I think if you are putting in that point as part of your description, then it's really good. Because when we are giving a talk, it's for the attendees, right? And if you mention what is the takeaway for the attendees, that would be like really great. So it's also like good to add all of these points. So, yeah. Yeah, well said, Anjali. That was actually going to be my biggest thing, especially for, for women who code events, right? Um, knowing like what attendees can walk away from is, is really valuable. Um, and especially because attendees are also making a commitment in their time to, to attend your talk. Um, I would say that, you know, kind of echoing what Sierra had said, I don't think you should worry too much if your CFP doesn't get accepted and don't give up on that. Keep submitting it. I lost count of the number of times I have been rejected from conferences, um, but there's just so many factors uh, behind the scenes. You know, there could be other people who submit a similar talk or you know there could be so many things behind the scenes that you can't control so keep submitting and um you know if anyone needs any help reviewing cfps i'm more than happy to to do that um the only other point i would add um i think that we covered it so well here is um anything that you can do to kind of call out your own unique perspective on the topic as well. Um, I know that <laughs> these are all big asks. Make sure you tell us why it's gonna inspire people and also what your unique perspective is. But um, I think that just saying even why you care about it personally can go a long way as well as 
this is an important topic to me for X, Y, or Z, or this has been beneficial in my career for X, Y, and Z, or this is something I really care about for whatever reason. Uh, all the great points have been covered. I feel like I just wanted to add a few things to uh, what Sierra just uh, said. So definitely like um, you don't, I, I, I understand like sometimes it's difficult to always come up with something new or something very unique as a talk topic. So uh, probably you don't have expertise in that yet, but still you want to give some talk. That's totally fine. You can pick like a common topic, but it depends on how you present it. You can always add a new dimension to it based on your experience. Probably you have some unique experience or a unique story to tell uh, in the same topic. So everything is valuable. And one more thing I would like to add is like from the organizer's point of view, probably it will give you an edge if you can also add like why you would be the right person to give this talk. So as example, you can just say, hey, these things, I have been working on this area for X, X many years in different companies, or I have this, or I have made this cool project, or, you know, I have papers on that. I mean, anything you have been exposed with related to this topic, if you just mention those things in your proposal, then probably it will also, you know, uh, it will, it may add as a standout point for your application. Well, thank you all for all those great tips. And yeah, I think that you've all shared like amazing um, tips for all of our audience here there as well about, um, you know, using like that. So I think that's fantastic. And I guess that then brings us to the last question um, we have before we have an exciting um, uh, thing for our audience afterwards. So Using your personal experience, how can you leverage your speaking experience into new opportunities? Sierra, if you want to kick off first. Yeah, I'm actually just going to point to things that we've already said today. We kind of covered both of my main ones already. Mm -hmm. um, number one, it gives other folks like a really good insight into the things that you're interested in working on or the things that you're already really good at working on. Um, I personally like really enjoy speaking about building accessible Android applications. And so that has led to conversations with folks that are trying to make their app more accessible or looking to hire those accessibility experts. Um, and so giving those talks has pointed them in my direction to at least start that conversation in the past. And then the other point I wanted to bring out is that being a speaker at a conference makes networking a whole heck of a lot easier at that conference. Joshi brought that up a little bit earlier in her opening, is that it gives you something to talk about. I am personally a nervous person, and so small talk and networking at events makes me very nervous. And so having a talk, being on the speaker list, those sorts of things gives people something to talk to you about or something for you to kind of open with when you're at those kind of events. And we all know that networking is a huge aspect to new opportunities and having those kinds of things um, open to you as well. Absolutely, I totally agree with Sarah. Uh, also, like whenever you give some talk, you receive a recording of it, please don't shy to share it all across your platform. Share it on LinkedIn, especially. Uh, share it with your family, friends, your colleagues. You don't know who may reach out to you regarding that talk because they know like you know about this topic. 
And also, uh, just uh, I want to share a personal experience, like how public speaking has helped me in my uh, current job. I mean, like my past job. Uh, but uh, so uh, I gave a talk in Connect Reimagine uh, this year, June, uh, on privacy preserving AI. And when I got the recording, I just went ahead. I hesitated a bit, uh, but then I went ahead and shared it with my colleagues in my current work. I shared it with my manager and my immediate uh, analytic team. What happened is that a few months later, when our company was uh, pivoting towards some privacy preserving uh, you know, dimension or privacy preserving uh, use cases, my manager called me and said, hey, Zarin, I know you know, know about this a lot. I, I saw your talk. So would you be interested to lead this project? So it really happened to me. So you can see like how like sharing your things with others uh, can really make a difference in the long run. Yeah, I think I would say that um, my speaking experience has never directly translated to a promotion or a new job. So don't ever be frustrated that, you know, you spoke at a, a bunch of conferences, but you're not still not getting responses from your resume. It takes so much time to build up that personal brand. It takes time to build up that network. Um, plus one to everything Sierra and Zareen has said, uh, it does having, you know, personal brand behind you and having artifacts like videos behind you really does help your uh, portfolio and really does help your career. I would share that in my personal experience, what's interesting about being a public speaker or even writing is that in a, in a situation where someone's trying to mansplain something to me that I have expertise in, um, I can always point them to, hey, look, I have this video where I did give a talk about Kubernetes, so it's okay, you don't have to explain this to me. And it is always funny to see people react in, in those situations. I think that is amazing, Wow, some great points. So, okay, uh, probably based on my career experience, I think speaking has really helped me personally because uh, Previously, when I started off, I was into development and I only interacted with my own colleagues, so did not really interact with the customers or the end users. I really wanted to go and switch to that um, that position as well. So currently, my role as a solutions consultant, day-to-day uh, -day basis, I interact with the customers, I listen to their pain points and help to transform that into a technical solution. So um, that's the kind of role that I was uh, thinking of when I was a developer. And speaking really helped me to become more confident and uh, also to gain more knowledge. So when you're talking more on technical aspects, you will get uh, more knowledge. And when you're presenting, you're actually teaching to people. So that also helps you to uh, build yourself and um, uh, able to uh, make a good connection with the attendees as well. And like uh, others mentioned, yeah, definitely, like Zareen mentioned, we should definitely share our videos or recordings in LinkedIn. So you don't know who would reach out to you for the next opportunity. So all great points here, guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I, I would be pretty bad for not sharing any talks that I did on LinkedIn or anything like that. So I'd be like, oh, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> so I've grown a lot from that there. And sometimes I get embarrassed looking at previous videos, but don't ever be like, um, I don't know. I think it's just listening to the sound of your own voice. You're like, oh, no, I don't want to hear that. But after a while, it's OK. 
So definitely share your talks with everyone. Let the audience know what you've been sharing, what experience you've been sharing with people. That can lead to so many opportunities as well. So I love it. So I guess that then brings us to the end of the panel. Um, so we actually um, are, we have an exciting opportunity for the community. We have recently created a CFP form for all of our technical tracks. Um, such as Python, data science, blockchain, front end, mobile and cloud. And you can find our fellows here on the panel today there on this up there too. So and um, also the new career nav track as well. You can submit a talk for that too. And it's a great way for you to share your technical expertise and experiences and learn all the tip, amazing tips that you learned from everyone today. You can submit a talk there. So I want to thank each of the fellows that joined us here, Sierra, Zareen, Jachi, and, and Anjali. Thank you for sharing all the advice and tips Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate and comment.